The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Evaluation revolts when Facebook and Honeywell trade at the same forward multiple. Is the market getting out of whack? We're going to look at whether stocks are too pricey and if so, which ones. Plus, individual investors have jumped headfirst into the markets this year and proved just how powerful a force they can be. We'll look at their influence and who benefits most from it. And a major player warns on oil prices. Dan Jurgen says crude is trapped in Virus Alley and could stay there next year. He joins us to explain. But let's start with the markets this hour. Bob Bassani has the very latest for us. Hi, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Uh, and essentially, this is the market that just uh, will not give up. Concerns about vaccine, concerns about stimulus doesn't seem to bother the markets at all. We're sitting essentially at new highs. Let's not quibble about tenths of a percentage point here for the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ, Russell 2000s had a good month overall here. And again, just sitting right near record highs here. As it has happened for the last six months, the big market stories are in these thematic tech ETFs. Investors just keep buying and loving solar stocks. Uh, anything related uh, to uh, overall clean energy, anything for 3D printing, anything for online retail, social media, uh, anything like that in these ETFs. Every day they go up, every day there is new creations uh, of ETFs involved in that. It's the big story in the second half of the year. At the same time, I see some cracks in the market. Kelly mentioned an evaluation revolt. Recently, the IPOs have been performing a little bit poorly. Most of the newer ones have been up, but market loves dealing with some of these names like Accolade, Cloudflare, C3i, Palantir, DoorDash, Peloton, Zoom, CrowdStrike, Airbnb. They're all down mid-single digits this week. Some of them are up fractionally today. I call this a multiple contraction. These cloud-based tech companies, they've got very high valuations. Investors are taking a little bit of money off the table towards the close of the year. But elsewhere, the market's pricey overall. These mega cap names, I know Apple's uh, you know, up enormously this year, but it's trading at 31 times forward earnings. Other than a month or two ago, it hasn't been in that level, that pricey for years. And neither has Microsoft, neither has Alphabet. Facebook, that's a relative bargain at 26 times forward earnings. And guys, I would say the same thing for a number of industrials like Caterpillar that got a big upgrade today. Well, that's trading for in, in the mid-20s. Uh, Honeywell is trading at 26 times forward earnings. I've been covering Honeywell for 20 years. I don't ever remember an industrial at 26 times forward earnings. That's really pricey. So the market is expecting an enormous uh, earnings boost in the second half of 2021. And it better deliver it because that's certainly what what everybody's expecting right now in terms of the prices. Guys, back to you. Bob, it's a great point that you make there. So it's actually Facebook at 26, you know, as a forward multiple looks, you know, not that stretch, but Honeywell at 26 is virtual. I don't know if it's unprecedented, right. but what does it tell you when the industrials are already trading with the same enthusiasm as some of the growthiest parts of the market? It tells you that the market is anticipating a massive reopening 
starting in the second quarter. And, and tomorrow, Kelly, we can talk a little bit more about exactly what the earnings expectations are. But if I can tell you, you look starting in the second quarter, they are seeing earnings go significantly higher, including for these industrials. So you can call them reopening plays, and they are. They're cyclicals, uh, but they are really, really stretched on a historic basis. Now, the bulls will say, well, they're stretched, Bob, but there's good reason to be stretched because we're going to have one hell of a reopening um, beginning in the second quarter. Okay, maybe we will, but uh, it's pretty priced in right now. Uh, that's my point about this before everybody gets too excited about adding more to the prices. Just look at the history a little bit. Yeah, look at what it's already reflecting. Bob, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Bob Bassani okay. there. Meanwhile, the dollar also drawing some major attention today as it drops below 90 on the dollar index to its lowest level since April of 2018. And multi-year lows are the next level traders are watching. For more, let's bring in Rick Santelli. Any clear catalyst today, Rick? You know, I think the clear catalyst has been ongoing. You know, when you're the reserve currency, Kelly, you create a whole litany of issues that aren't necessarily as large or loom as negative for other currencies. And of course, the major issue I'm talking about is spending. You know, it really is wrong to just say deficits. Spending turns into deficits. The issue now is every city, every state, every country, every economy on the planet spending much more than they're taking in. And that really dents the reserve currency. And yes, we're hovering at levels we haven't seen since the spring of 2018. And it isn't just the dollar index. You are at extremes on the euro versus dollar two and a half years, pound versus dollar near two and a half years, yuan, the Chinese currency toying with two and a half years, on the Japanese yen about 10 months because of that same issue. And it's going to get much worse potentially because ultimately these deficits and the spending probably aren't going to go away quickly. If you go to the whiteboard, this goes back to 1985 on the dollar index. You can see you got a great buy in 2014. And here's that line at 90 you talked about. But the difference here to the next line is huge. We're talking about potentially going to 85 as long as we stay on a closing basis under 90. You know, Rick, so I, I know I asked you about catalysts, and like you said, this has been an ongoing thing as it relates to the deficit and, and so forth, but we did get the trade deficit stuff this morning, and it was not pretty. I mean, it, it's really interesting. Consumer imports, consumer goods imports are up 17% year-on-year, which speaks to the strengths and the stimulus checks and that sort of thing. Exports are down, and our trade gap is like $20 billion wider now than it was at this time last year, so I can't help but think that must be putting some downward pressure on the dollar. Oh, absolutely, because we're just looking at the issue from a different vantage point. What you're describing is also highly COVID-related, and the fact of the matter is is that we can't get the export economy cooking the way we'd like it to, but the demand is still there for the largest economy, and China's benefiting on the export side. So you're going to see a lot of action, especially between the Chinese currency and the dollar. But yes, trade will normalize much more as we get through covid but it has been one of the big issues that has affected the currency. You're absolutely correct, Kelly. It's definitely gotten worse, a lot worse this year. We'll, we'll see uh, if this is the low point or not. Rick, thank you very much, sir. Rick Santelli. Meantime, growth stocks are having their best year since 1979 relative to value. The growth ETF, the IBW, is up more than 30% this year thanks to all the high-flying tech and pandemic plays. But lately, it's starting to change. In the past three months, value is outpacing growth by about 3%. And my next guests say, you need to get on the value train for 2021. For more, let's welcome in Nancy Priel, the co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. And 
David Katz is President and Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. Nancy, I'll start with you. Um, so is it specific companies? Is it value kind of writ large, which is always a, a tricky, I think, play from a sector point of view? I mean, where specifically would you point people? So we think it is both specific companies as well as certain segments of the market that have been neglected, not only over this past pandemic year, but really over the last 10 years, as we've seen a significant outperformance of highly visible, highly visible secular growth stories over perhaps less well-recognized, less well-visible areas um, that can be classified as either value stocks or perhaps as growth stocks that are selling at very inexpensive valuations. Those would be some of the building block companies in areas like hardware in the technology area, areas like suppliers into many of the industrials, some of the areas in consumer discretionary, some of the financials, even some areas in healthcare, like on the services and the um, diagnostics and on the um, equipment side that have not been exploited as the more open-ended, more clearly recognized names in, say, biotech, specialty pharma, software, internet, etc. Yeah, I know you. a lot of your favorites are in the small cap space. I think that's yeah. a good place for people to look for some of these themes and values. David, what about you? Also kind of thinking that growth just can't continue this performance into 2021? Uh, Bloomberg puts out an interesting chart. They look at growth versus value. And right now we're about four standard deviations over value to the growth side. So statistically, that happens less than 0.1% of the time. So we think it's going to reverse. The other thing that's happening is a lot of value areas of the market, a lot of value sectors, we think the stars are aligning for them to do a lot better. You have the COVID vaccine. Uh, it's going to make the economy return to normalcy. You have an improving economy. The regulatory and political environment we think is very good. And interestingly, a lot of value stocks did very well this year in terms of their businesses. The stocks have been left in, in, you know, in the lurch. Uh, financials are a great example. We think that financials are going to do very well this year. Their loan portfolios are good. The uh, yield curve is steepening. Uh, Janet Yellen, Yellen, as the head of the Treasury, is a net positive. So we think all of those things are good, yet it's the cheapest area of the market by a lot. We think the dividends are safe. We'll start to grow again ne next year. And we think people are going to seek those out. So we expect a lot of money to flow in, and you want to get in there early. Yeah, so U.S. Bank... Uh, Pinnacle West, Gilead, and the healthcare front, Verizon and Coca-Cola. You know, a lot of investors listening, Nancy, will say I have a hard time getting excited about those names. We heard Bob Bassani off the top of the hour say that Honeywell's already trading at a multiple of 26, which is pretty high uh, for Honeywell. So are we sure that, you know, A, that value is such a bargain, and B, that this is the right place for people to go? So again, we think that it is that combination of companies with good growth prospects that are selling at inexpensive valuations. And actually, despite the move in the markets this year, there are many companies that fit that um, qualification. As somebody earlier today mentioned, the growth in the market has been really concentrated in a handful of companies and a handful of areas, while the vast majority of stocks have either gone up less than the market and some have even not gone up at all. So we do believe that you can find companies that are selling at 15, 16, 17, 18 times earnings with good growth prospects. The companies themselves may not look that sexy on the surface, but if you dig down underneath and you can find out that they are participating in many of the same very exciting growth areas like sustainability, 5G, 
um, autonomous driving, et cetera, that some of the more visible names are um, also participating in, that that is the opportunity where investors can really find great opportunities to buy companies at reasonable prices. And this is particularly true yeah. as you go down into the smaller cap segments of the market. I would note this is the fourth time since um, the, the 1930s that we have talked about the death of value. And it is even more dramatic this time than it's been in most of those cases. We think that past could well be prologue and that we will see an opportunity for these companies with good growth prospects, where those growth prospects are not yet fully discounted in the prices of the stocks, to benefit from increased right. investor attention. I was just going to say my favorite thematic uh, play of yours is millennials adulting, uh, speaking from personal experience. But David, before we go, I want to give you also a chance to respond you know, to the investors who might say, your picks are too, too boring for me. You know, How do I know? How do I know that these are companies that are actually going to perform well and not be value traps? And your enthusiasm for the financials in particular comes to mind. You know, We've heard people make the case time and again in recent years, really, as to why they will benefit from, you know, the the alignment of the stars. It, it, they're okay, but, you know, why do you think 2021 is the year they could really break out? We, we think they're far better than okay. They came through this recession in great form. The loan portfolios have held up. We think they're overcapitalized. And the Fed two weeks ago said they could start to buy back stock. So, and the regulatory environment's good. Yet, their valuations are at 10, 11, 12 times earnings. So you made the point in the last set that a lot of stocks are at 25 times earnings. This is a really cheap area of the market with improving fundamentals. Gilead is a biotech company with a really good cancer portfolio, makes a boatload of money, pays over a 4.5% dividend yield. It's not boring. Uh, the Wall Street Journal talked about possible consoli <laughs> consolidation in the industry. Uh, it could be a takeover candidate. It's at a great price. Uh, Pinnacle West is, is a dull company, but dull paying a 4.5% dividend is going to be very attractive when you can get zero in a money market. So we think it's very, very timely. Uh, and we think dividend yields are going to be a really good place to be in the upcoming year as well. This, no, I, I'm just giving you a hard time, but boring is beautiful sometimes, as they say. Uh, we'll see if that transition yes. is upon us. David Katz, Nancy Pryle, thank you both. Uh, good to have you on today. Happy New Year. Have Coming a great up here, day. individual investors, happy New Year to you too. Speaking of individual investors, they bought into the market in 2020 like never before. Why we could see that last into next year, and if so, who benefits? We'll tell you about that. Plus, it was a wild year for energy stocks as investors fled them in the depths of the pandemic. But energy is now mounting a comeback up 26% in three months. But are investors getting ahead of themselves? We'll ask industry expert Dan Jurgen. We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. The online brokerage industry is closing the year on a high note after individual investors flooded the market, opening at least 10 million new brokerage accounts in 2020. That's a record. Now, it was one thing in the depths of the pandemic when there were no sports to bet on and little else to do. But it turns out, look at this chart. Customers are logging into their accounts more now than they were back in those days. For more on the perfect storm here for retail trading, I'm joined by Devin Ryan. He's senior research analyst at JMP Securities. Devin, it's great to have you. I'm really surprised that interest is increasing. What do you make of it? Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it really was just one of those uh, kind of perfect storms, as you just mentioned, this year where uh, you know, late last year we moved to zero commission rates, and I think that remove some of the remaining friction in trading. And then, you know, the volatility that started at the beginning of the pandemic really, I think, drove people into the market. And then, you know, kind of those unique conditions of work from home, uh, everyone spending more time online, that really drove in a record level of new accounts. Uh, I think people spent a lot of time educating themselves. And so we're exiting 2020 with um, well over 10 million new customers into the industry, many young and, and first-time customers. And uh, that, that drives a lot of potential for you know, future activity. I think the baseline of activity in trading is quite a bit higher today than it was at the same time last year because you do have uh, such great growth over the past year. Yeah. The new entrance. I mean, from a top level, you know, I speak with the strategist Brian Reynolds about this all the time, but, you know, we were all wondering what would happen with the absence of corporate buybacks in the stock market this year. And retail investors have largely picked up the slack from that, which is absolutely amazing. And you're suggesting it could continue from where you sit. Who are the 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 players and, you know, sort of tell our audience who you think investment wise benefits the most from this as it continues and as Robinhood potentially prepares to go public? Sure. I mean, there's, there's so many interesting themes right now. You had a huge wave of consolidation, right? So Schwab just uh, finished the acquisition of Ameritrade. And so now you know, they're going to be focused on integrating that company. But uh, you know, that's a 30 million account uh, firm at this point. So just a you know, tremendous platform. And I think they're going to um, drive a lot of evolution from here in the industry because it is so powerful. Uh, there is a lot of earnings uh, accretion that will come from that deal. And so I think uh, that would, you know, Schwab would be one to watch here. Morgan Stanley uh, just acquired E-Trade. So, um, you know, I think that's pushing them hard on the kind of digital digital strategy and moving uh, a little bit downstream in terms of the size of customers. And so uh, Morgan Stanley would be another firm, you know, I think that will benefit from that. And then you mentioned, you know, I think there's a number of kind of mobile first platforms, whether it's the Robinhoods or the Weebles um, or even eToro, um, these platforms that um, have seen tremendous growth over the past year, um, are really gaining market share of the industry. And, and really, I think the key thing here is that it's not just about trading. Many of these firms are going to be adding new tools and capabilities that connect customers to other parts of financial services. So I think the expectation is going to be that they want to go to their app and have access to banking product, have access to other asset management product in addition to just trading. Well, and that kind of is my next question. You know, we just showed the average trades per day on Robinhood versus some of the other platforms, and Robinhood appears to be winning. Plus, E-Trade is buried in Morgan Stanley, which requires that you take a view on the rest of that business, too, if you want investment exposure. So why should I bet on some of the incumbents here whose app usage and technology and trading activity appears to be running behind Robinhood, which arguably is now the dominant kind of new player in this industry? Why shouldn't I just save my capital for that IPO? Well, I, I think, you know, all these platforms have a little bit of a different um, uh, spin to them. Uh, Schwab has tremendous scale, um, as I just mentioned, and, and Ameritrade um, really uh, for active traders um, is 
one of the leading platforms. And so combining Schwab's kind of advice-based uh, almost you know, platform where they have a lot of other capabilities beyond just trading and Ameritrade where, you know, they really um, have, you know, a tremendous platform for active traders. I think it's a really strong combination, not to mention that roughly half of the accounts at those firms, uh, Schwab and Ameritrade, um, are connected to the RIA customers um, that, that these firms provide custodial services for. It's so Darling, that you know, that's another big business that, that they have. Devin, I appreciate it, sir. Uh, we dropped out there, uh, Devin Ryan from JMP Securities. We're showing, of course, shares of Charles Schwab right now, uh, which he was just mentioning with its huge surge uh, in new accounts this year. They're not the only one. Uh, thanks, Devin, for your time. We appreciate it. Coming up here on the exchange, denim and dollars, two themes behind some of the stock movers today, including this stock hitting an all-time high. We'll reveal the name of this mystery chart ahead. Plus, the live entertainment industry finally getting a lifeline with the latest stimulus bill. But is it enough when you look at empty theaters like that? We'll check back in with one struggling concert venue ahead. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets about half past the hour. Dow is up 190 at the highs. We're only 40 points off that level right now. So a half percent gain for the industrials leading the way today with the S&P and NASDAQ both up about a third of a percent. All but two sectors are positive. Materials and energy up more than one percent today. Uh, communication services down about half a percent. And here are some of the individual stories that we're watching. Shares of Levi Strauss are higher after Guggenheim raised their price target on the stock to 24 bucks from 20. They have a buy rating on it. Levi's trading just above 20 right now, but up two and a half percent. Visa hitting an all-time high today. The stock now up 50 percent since the March lows. This was one of the best performers over the past decade, adding 2.2 percent. And shares of AstraZeneca in the spotlight following the UK's emergency use approval for the vaccine it developed with Oxford University. AZN adding half a percent. On that note, don't miss an exclusive interview with Oxford's professor, Sir John Bell, who helped oversee the vaccine. That's on Closing Bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Sticking with healthcare, let's talk about what could be considered a classic buy the rumor, sell the news event. Since Pfizer received its FDA authorization for its COVID vaccine, the stock is down nearly 10%. Same pattern is true for Moderna. Since it received authorization for its vaccine, the stock is down 20%. 
as you can see there, down another 2% today. Let's get over to Leslie Picker now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly. I am Leslie Picker, and here's what's happening at this hour. Canada will require all arriving airline passengers to show proof of a negative COVID-19 test. This according to CBC News. The test must be performed within 72 hours of arrival. Operation Warp Speed's top advisor says two more COVID-19 vaccines are on track to get U.S. approval early next year. Dr. Slowey says Johnson & Johnson's vaccine could get gain clearance in early February, while AstraZeneca's vaccine could get the green light in April. And in India, tens of thousands of protesting farmers have reached a partial agreement with the government over new laws that caused them to blockade highways for weeks. More talks are set for Monday to resolve the remaining, the remaining issues. And a titan of the public relations business has died. Howard Rubenstein's high-profile clients include Donald Trump, former Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, and media tycoon Rupert Murdoch. Howard Rubenstein was 88 years old. And that's our CNBC News update for this hour. Back over to you, Kelly. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. 2020 was a big year for tech, up more than 42% to handily outperform the broader S&P. But noted tech investor Dan Niles told Closing Bell yesterday he's getting cautious on the sector for 2021, and some of his favorite names for the year are in energy. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, to get his picks, head over to cnbc.com pro. And coming up here, the oil and gas ETF, the XOP, is up another 3% today on pace for its second straight month of gains. We're going to talk to Dan Jurgen of IHS, who warns that oil will be stuck in what he's calling Virus Alley for some time next year. He joins us with this 2021 outlook after this. Remember, you can always watch us on the go using the CNBC app anytime. We're back in a couple. exactly one year since COVID-19 first emerged in Wuhan, China, before spreading to the rest of the world. Eunice Yoon takes a look at where China is in its reopening. Hey, Kelly. Well, things look normal. For example, this restaurant is almost full uh, one day ahead of New Year's Eve after months of struggling to stay in business. Exactly a year ago today, an eye doctor in Wuhan alerted his fellow doctors in a chat group that a mystery virus emerged at his hospital. He was later silenced by police and died by what became known to the world as COVID-19. Today, businesses like this have made a comeback and China is expected to grow by 8% in 2021. But even here, life is not the way it used to be. Beijing has had many outbreaks. There are 20 cases, so 1.2 million people have been tested. And there's still controversy over what happened in Wuhan. A study out this week by the Chinese CDC showed an antibody prevalence rate of 4.43%, which some experts say suggests half a million people in Wuhan were infected or exposed to the virus. And a local journalist was sentenced this week to four years in prison for her reporting in Wuhan. And China is one step closer to having a homegrown vaccine. State producer Sinopharm said one of its candidates is 79% effective. The results are only interim of a phase three trial, and the lack of a detailed breakdown of the trial data for the vaccines is raising concerns about their safety and efficacy. Kelly? 
Our thanks to Eunice Yoon. 2020 has meanwhile been a historic year for the oil market. Crude is down 21% since January, beginning the year at $60 a barrel and sitting today at 48. So what made the year so historic? Well, let's take you back to April. On April 20th, crude, already hammered by the pandemic, began the day at $17 a barrel. Minutes before the close, crude prices plunged and even went negative, something that had never happened before. It got worse and worse and worse until oil eventually settled, settled at negative $37.63. Essentially means I'm paying you to take my oil contract. It did rebound the following day to around 10 bucks a barrel, but these wild moves sent investors fleeing from energy, with the sector the worst performer in the S&P down 36% this year. That said, in the past three months, it's outperforming every other sector. It's now up about 26% in that time frame. And according to our CNBC quarterly stock report, Exxon is the top choice among investors when asked what the best performing investment will be in 2021. Beating out Bitcoin, Tesla, and Apple. Is this recent optimism warranted? With me now is Dan Jurgen. He's the vice chair of IHS Market and author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan, we say all this uh, to welcome you on because I know that you're more cautious on the oil outlook than we've heard from a lot of folks recently. Why? Well, I certainly see oil has obviously improved and will continue to improve once people feel comfortable that there's that the shutdowns are going to start to lessen. But when I called it the virus alley, it's a sense that the, it will be volatile. It's a little over $50 now, but uh, if growth will resume, but it's going to re resume when activity resumes, when people start driving again. Uh, more than they have when people start flying more. But that could be two, three months from now, depending upon how widespread the vaccinations are. So this is not a long-term thing. And oil has been struggling. Uh, it's in that range of 40 to 50. And it's been it's very close around the $50 range right now. So let's zero in on that, Dan, for a moment. So you're saying when you talk about being trapped in Virus Alley that you see crude kind of trapped between the 40 and $50 levels here. Why can't we break out uh, to the 50 to $65 well, range that you're saying is so important for well, uh, investors and for the oil patch? Well, Kelly, I, I think it, it will actually break out. And it probably wouldn't be until the spring that we would see it really, I mean, we'll on a sustained basis, get out of this, and it'll be very closely tied to economic activity. I mean, I think that by the end of next year, around this time or early 2022, we'll see oil demand back to where it was in 2019, and we'll be in that higher price range that will be bringing out the investment and ending the kind of retrenchment that we've seen now. But it's still a period, it's what, you, what you've been talking about in terms of the shutdowns that are now happening with this latest wave of the virus have to get to the other side of that to be on a sustained basis. We also have the supply piece of the equation to worry about. You know, you can have a nice increase in demand, but like you said, if OPEC's keeping 7 million barrels a day off the market, if the Iranian barrels don't count but suddenly come back because of a Biden administration, uh, and if U.S. starts producing more like we were at the heights, then all of a sudden you have a lot of supply uh, for that demand to absorb. In fact, we just got this headline in the past hour that U.S. drillers have added the most oil and gas rigs in a quarter since the second quarter of 2017. Is that going to be a mitigating factor here? They're certainly starting to uh, kind of anticipate what's going to happen. I think oil production now in the U.S. is down about 2 million barrels a day from where it was in February. So I think that we'll really start to see it increase again in the kind of the middle, the second half of the year. But Kelly, you're pointing to something that's out there. There's an awful lot of oil on the sidelines, 
which that OPEC plus is trying to keep on the sidelines. And that will be part of the game as to how well they control it is do they just bring on 500,000 barrels a day every month or do people start adding more supply in? And so that oversupply hangs out there. And the question you point to about Iran is really important. And that gets into the geopolitics between the United States and Iran with the Biden administration. It does. I'm struck again by, we mentioned this a moment ago, but one of the investors who usually comes on this network to talk about uh, themes in technology and otherwise is saying that his favorite picks for next year, this is Dan Niles I'm referring to, are in energy. So all of a sudden there there are a lot of people looking to the sector, Dan, and saying they think this is now the time to get in. And I just wonder, again, not because you're a portfolio manager or anything, but for all the people who think Exxon's going to be the top pick and energy is the place to be, I mean, would you would you say to kind of check the enthusiasm or does it make sense to you uh, that it could continue to be a really strong performer? Well, clearly, the sector has been so beaten down that that's the point you start. You know, how many sectors have been that low? And the other thing is, I think the sector is really focused. The companies are really focused on returns to investors and whether they're shale or the large companies and with higher prices, if you get back to that 50 to $65 range, and you know some people are even betting on 75, then these companies will be able to deliver returns to investors. And so uh, this has been so unloved this year that's now ending that it's getting a little tender loving care going into next year. I guess finally, and this is another concern that comes up sometimes uh, for people who remain skeptical about investing in energy, they say there's too much private equity money, there's too much capital in general that's keeping unprofitable firms alive preventing consolidation and that kind of thing. I mean, do you think that still rings true? Well, I think what we're seeing is already that there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the shale sector. Uh, It was a sector that was really driven by the independence, by smaller companies. People are getting together to be more efficient, to bring down their costs. And that's partly to guarantee that there will be returns to investors. So I think we'll see more consolidation as a response to that. And that's part of the, the new social contract, as I call it, between the industry and investors. Well, well, and on that point of that social contract, what does that mean these days? I mean, this is an industry that is is seen as, you know, uninvestable by a whole new generation, right? I mean, even as they're in many ways, these individual companies are making huge investments to be part of, you know, green tech and renewables. They have huge chemicals businesses and so many other things going on. But what does that social contract look like now? Well, the social contract has two parts. One is return to investors. And there are certainly some investors who just don't want to touch the sector. There are others who basically want returns. And if they see returns, they'll be there. And at the same time, the industry itself is adjusting to this ESG era. And, you know, with their sustainability, looking at controlling methane, all the things they're going to do, that they realize that they do have to respond to an ESG agenda. And that's why a lot of companies, for instance, are looking at hydrogen now as as part of the play. But it's going to be the industry is adjusting to, it has to adjust to a different, as you put it, as we said, a different contract with investors. It has two parts. One is returns, the other is ESG. They're not necessarily the same investors. Yeah, no, that's for sure. I see the prize over your shoulder there. It remains one of my favorite books of all time. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure. Good to see you. Thanks. Dan Jurgen of IHS. 
Still ahead from Billie Eilish to the Foo Fighters, the recently passed Save Our Stages Act has support from high-profile artists and independent concert venues. We're going to dig into the details and talk about which theaters will get the first round of this funding and how much it can do to keep them going in 2021. That's right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's zero in on two big calls on the street today. First on Nike, Guggenheim calling the stock its best idea for 2021 in the sector, giving it a $165 price target. That's a 17% rally. I mean, you think maybe more of a rally for your best idea. Anyway, uh, they're saying Nike is embarking on the next era of its history, which will be digitally led and create even greater separation versus peers. Guggenheim says athleisure will remain favorable, an area where Nike is the leader, and they expect the company's new product innovation to remain robust. The stock is up 135% from its lows this year. And on the industrial side, let's take a look at Caterpillar. Baird getting bullish on the name today, calling it its top idea for 2021 and hiking its price target to 220 from 206, so that's about a 20% rally. They're saying demand in the key markets is set to rebound, among them for construction equipment. Baird sees retail demand also accelerating against easy prior year comparisons. And history shows that dealers tend to start restocking in year two of a recovery. CAT is up more than 106% from its 52-week low. Still ahead, $15 billion has been designated for independent concert venues in the newest round of stimulus. We're going to get an update from the CEO of Count Basie Center for the Arts right here in New Jersey, talk about the Save Our Stages Act and how they're continuing to rethink concerts and events as the pandemic goes on. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange with the latest stimulus package. Relief is finally on the way for thousands of live entertainment venues. Elon Moy joins us now with a closer look at what's in the bill and whether it's enough to turn things around for some of these struggling players. Elon? Well, Kelly, the new legislation sets aside $15 billion in direct aid for thousands of independent venues like music clubs, movie theaters, and museums. The money will be delivered as grants worth 45% of their 2019 revenue, and it can be used toward ongoing costs. Mortgage, rent, utilities, those uh, recurring expenses, those didn't stop just because of a pandemic. You know, our, our revenue spigot was cut off. But all those, those daily, monthly expenses have, have continued to accrue. Now, Blaine Tucker is an owner and investor in several Texas music clubs, including Floor's Country Store. It's an old-school honky-tonk where Elvis and Patsy Cline have all performed, and it's a Lone Star State destination. You know, it's not just a place to go out and drink beer and, and have fun. While it is that, too, um, they're a huge economic driver in any, any society and city around the country. Now, this legislation specifically prohibits the relief money from going toward any large companies or publicly traded companies. But still, some of the biggest names in entertainment have gotten behind this effort. Alice Cooper, Katy Perry, Sarah Silverman. Kelly, the challenge now is that setting up these programs could take a couple of months and some businesses may not be able to hold on that long. Back to you. And what's the estimate, Elon, of when people will be able to get access to these funds? We know that the, often the distribution, even on the vaccine front, has been the thorn uh, in our side all year. 
Yeah, so when I talked to Blaine Tucker, what he told me is that March is his conservative estimate for when these programs might actually be set up and the money can start going out the door. The good news is that the hardest hit businesses would be able to access the cash first. So those with 90% loss of revenue or more, they would get access to the first tranche of money and then it would sort of go on after that. But certainly these businesses have been waiting for this relief already for months since the pandemic started. If you're looking at next, next March, that's been a whole year that they've gone without this help. Yeah, which is, I don't know how anyone can stay afloat for a year with basically no revenues. Elon, oh, we appreciate it. Elon Moy with the very latest out of Washington. One of the venues that press for relief funds is the Count Basie Center for the Performing Arts in Red Bank, New Jersey. Count Basie is responsible for more than $18 million in local economic impact, and it drew more than a quarter million visitors a year before the pandemic. Joining us now is Adam Philipson, its CEO. Adam, it's great to have you. So first of all, your knee-jerk reaction to the funding and when you're going to have access to it is what? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having us back, Kelly. And, um, you know, nice to be here expressing some gratitude. Knee-jerk reaction is, uh, you know, as we're reading through everything, is uh, there's probably three rounds of funding. We think we'll be in the second round. And we're, as has been said, probably March is when that money is going to become available. So that's good or it's too little too late? I mean, what's been going on with all of these venues that have been, have you guys been effectively closed this whole time, or have you figured out a way to stay open and try to do some events? Yeah, we have. We, we, you know, we've been lucky that we've been able to pivot and be creative. We, we did outdoor programming. Uh, you know, over the summer, we partnered with a couple of venues outdoors. We had some of the biggest and most active concert gatherings. And then now we have two indoor venues, and it's small, and it's not sustainable, uh, but, uh, you know, we have our new venue, The Vogel, and a pop-up stage in our Hackensack Meridian Health Theater that we've opened at about 150 people. There's a lot of venues that have not been able to do that just because of their smaller capacities, and, um, you know, they're going to be hanging on, and, and hopefully there's some other funds that will come in to support them in the interim. But uh, we've been able to be yeah. innovative and, uh, and, and get, some, get some revenue flowing. When you're looking out to 2021, I imagine typically you're booking this calendar months and months ahead of time, coordinating with all sorts of different, you know, concerts and schedulers and, and promoters. So are you starting to book things for next year with an eye towards, OK, by April or July or September, we think we're going to be getting back to normal? Or do you have to wait until we know? Because the more that we think about it, the more you wonder when we are going to know that it's OK to gather indoors for a concert again. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, first of all, we've had about 115 shows in 219 that we've already moved. So we moved them to 2020, and now they're being moved to 2021. So there's just a very few canceled. Most of them just kept pivoting forward. So, uh, you know, we're thinking if everything continues and there's light at the end of the tunnel and, and there's enough vaccines that get out there and an appropriate form of getting that to the people that need it to feel safely, and we're hoping that by September, we should be able to see us back to some level 70, 80 percent capacity. Yeah, the PPP loan, a lot the first or I guess the last time around, how did that work for you guys? What were you able to do? How long did it last? Um, and what about the next round of funding? Because there will be more PPP funds available as well as this targeted relief. Right. Uh, it worked well for us. I think it helped us survive the first really, I mean, maybe the first six to eight weeks. Uh, you know, it helped us be able to think and pivot and come up with some other strategies and move our education programs online and do all the things that we had to do to remain relevant in, in the field. 
you know, we're hearing right now that if you're going to get the stimulus, the SOS money, uh, you probably wouldn't qualify for the PPP as well, because I think both are going through the SBA. So I'm not sure that we'll get both, but uh, certainly those venues that wouldn't qualify for this, for the SOS money uh, would qualify probably for another round of PPP. Yeah. I'm also curious because you guys have had a success in getting uh, this direct relief in the bill. What do you think about the restaurant industry, which is not seeing its similar kind of measure move forward? You know, they obviously will be able to tap PPP, but you think if anybody's an obvious candidate for targeted relief, they would be one of them. What was your experience like? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we were surprised. We thought that we would be all part of this bill. And certainly we've been helping each other, all relying on each other, right? You know, I mean, we we all feed the economies. Um, I think the restaurants have been incredibly helpful to us to be advocating, at least in Red Bank, how important it is that the Count Basie is open again uh, to, to, to thrive the businesses in our community. And, you know, we'll continue to be helpful to the restaurants. I mean, we're, we're looking into how we can partner with some of them. We were advertising to get them out. Listen, if we can be open even a little bit, that's more opportunity for restaurants to have people coming out. So, I think it's uh, it all has to feed the others, and and I do believe there'll be sufficient legislation to to get uh, the restaurants back in business as soon as they can at fully at capacity. Obviously, all of us are waiting for the uh, for the vaccine to take effect. Yeah. So I guess my last question then is: Do you expect 2021 to look more like 2020 or 2019 for your business and for the number of people that you employ and all of those things? Well, I think uh, it's probably not going to look like 2019. I don't think that we're going to feel a 2019 year, uh, you know, probably for a few years. I think it's just going to be slow getting people back and getting people to feel safe. And, uh, you know, I think tours are going to be at a little bit lower capacity in the beginning. I don't think it's going to look like 2020. Let's let's say that for sure. But uh, I think 2021 is going to still be part of our recovery. And uh you know, and then hopefully by 2022, we're, we're all really kind of moving back to how we were before across the entire sector. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Just like we heard in that previous segment, you can go somewhere to have a beer and hang out with people. <laughs> Sounds really good right now. Adam, thanks Doesn't so it? much for your time. Uh, good luck. Keep us posted. Thank you. We will. Thanks for having us back. Adam Philipson with the Count Basie Center in Red Bank, New Jersey. Sigmund Entertainment, take a quick look at shares of AMC today. They're down 6%. The company offering 50 million new shares for sale and a fresh round of funding to save off bankruptcy. Remember, it's still the largest cinema chain in the world. They raised over $100 million earlier this month on 38 million of uh, shares and a 200 million available share size. So they're having some trouble placing these. Uh, still, they're down more than 70%, down 6% today. And now it's on the smaller side for us to even mention. Its market cap is down to under $350 million. On the flip side, let's take a look at one of the best performing asset classes this year, Bitcoin. If you can call it its own asset class, it basically is. It's up another 5% today or $1,500 to another all-time high. Its market cap is now over half a trillion dollars, $518 billion, according to CoinMarketCap. And it's now on pace for its best year since 2017. That's when we saw its parabolic move higher when it was up almost 1,400%. Investors have seen demand coming from larger and larger players, you know, some big name investors like Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, and Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, others are attracted to the inflation hedging qualities and looking to flesh out their investment portfolios. The institutional money uh, has just been starting to pour in. 
We'll continue to follow all of it. That does it for us here on The Exchange today. But coming up next on Power Lunch, Olympic gold medalist Bodie Miller joins us to talk about his latest venture, his investment portfolio, and what ski season and a pandemic looks like. I'll join Brian Sullivan for that after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.